If you have a copy of God's Word, we'd encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 9, or Genesis chapter 8, I'm sorry, I'm going to be reading from Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, through chapter 9, verse 17. Um, as you turn there, uh, I thought about um, uh, when I was growing up a lot this week, and uh, I thought back to when I was a teenager, and uh, I was never, we have a teenager at our house now, so I'm thinking more about my own teenager years, and uh, I was never very good at dating. Um, I uh, look back on that, and I was never very good at that, so I'm very thankful that I got married uh, at a younger age, because I wasn't particularly good at it. Because I can remember recognizing a girl or seeing her and wanting to go talk to her, but never really coming up with the courage uh, or the gumption to actually go and have a conversation. So I think later in my life when I became a youth director, uh, I overcompensated a bit because whenever a teenage boy came and confessed his love... Uh, for another girl in the youth group, which happened quite often, actually, I would always tell them, well, go for it. Just don't be scared. Don't be frightened. Just go for it. Just go talk to her. And so uh, I may or may not have been responsible for a lot of epic crash and burns uh, with teenage boys uh, over the years because I, of course, didn't want them to repeat my mistakes. But uh, what is true of me is true of a lot of us when it comes to relationships, Uh, not just dating relationships, uh, but relationships with with friends, uh, with coworkers, with family. Uh, There are some of us who just want to allow relationships to just come to us. Uh, We like to be sought out by other people. And then there are those of us who like to engage a little bit more, those who are always willing to take the initiative always willing to go seek out new relationships or deepen relationships. Well, as we come to the book of Genesis, we find that God is intensely relational. We see that from the very beginning. And when it comes to God, who is our creator, what we see in the book of Genesis is that he is constantly taking the initiative when it comes to his relationship with his creation. His creation doesn't seem to really seek him out a whole lot, and so God is always the one who is taking the first step. And he is even willing, especially willing to do it, when his creation has made a big mess of things. And that's what you see from Genesis 3, chapter on. His creation is consistently making a mess of things. And so what does God do? He takes the first step. He takes the initiative. He engages his creation. And uh, if you've been with us this summer, you'll know that we've been looking at the covenants that are all throughout the scriptures. And really those covenants are God's willingness to take the initiative, his willingness to step into relationship with his creation, even after they've messed things up, his willingness to set the terms of that relationship with his creation. And we see that in our passage here this morning, we see God's covenant with Noah. So again, I'm going to be reading uh, from Genesis uh, chapter 8, verse 20, uh, through Genesis chapter 9, uh, verse 17. This is God's word. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma... The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. 
Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, for it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be any flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we're very thankful for your word. Uh, we're thankful for its power, for the thankful for the way that it speaks to us. And so we pray that as we meditate on your word over the next few minutes, uh, that you would speak to our hearts despite the, the inadequacies and the failures and the sins of its messenger. So Father, visit us with your presence here this morning. May we, may we see the power of you in the story of Noah, but may we also see the power of you manifest daily in each and every one of our lives through the gospel. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So like we said before, we've been looking at uh, these covenants throughout the summer, and we'll see God's activity through these covenants uh, traced throughout all of the scriptures. Uh, if you were with us two weeks ago, um, we saw the effects of the first sin that God had engaged in a covenant with Adam and Eve. They violated that covenant, and because of that violation, there were effects all over the place. Uh, for this first couple. Last week, we saw that sin manifests itself in their children. Uh, they had two boys, Cain and Abel, and in a fit of anger and rage, Cain murders his brother, Abel, 
And so we see the effect of sin on this first family. That first family becomes a broken family. And then you come to Genesis 6 and you see that the situation has only gotten worse. We saw last week that the family is the basic building block of culture, right? And so we see this week that uh, the sin has polluted not just that first family, but it has extended beyond that family into the entire culture that was on the world at that time. The culture at that time isn't built around glorifying God, which is the, the cultural mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve. Instead, the culture has bent in upon itself because of the effects of sin. Maybe you've seen this before, but a lot of times when I like to teach the concept of sin to young kids, I take a glass of water, of pure water. Maybe you've seen this before. And all you need to do is take one little drop of food coloring and you drop it on the top of that water and you begin to see the color spread all throughout the water. And if you just wait a couple of seconds, the entire water has been polluted because of that one drop of food coloring. And that's what we see in the first chapters of Genesis. That one initial sin led to pollution that extended all throughout the culture that was in Noah's day because that is what sin does. It spreads and it pollutes into everything. And so the occasion for this story of Noah really is the wickedness of man, the lengths to which sin had polluted mankind, and how God is going to respond to the wickedness and the pollution of sin. I don't know if you pay attention in our culture today, uh, there's a lot of condemnatory talk that exists in our culture. All you have to do is go on social media for a little bit, whether it's the political world or the culture world, uh, whatever it is, there's a lot of condemnatory talk that is out there. And that's because people see sin, they see injustice, they see all sorts of negative things that are going on, and they cry out for something to be done about those things. There's something about us when we witness injustice. We want something to be done. We want someone to step in and fix the problems that we see. We long for someone or something to right the injustices that are in our culture. Well, as our passage opens up, we see that very unjust or unjust culture. We see sin, injustice, perversion. Those are the things that are ruling the day. And so what does God do? God decides to do something about it. He decides to respond to the injustice and the perversion that is all around them. And it says in uh, chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. It's so important what you see here. Not, it's, the passage says that man was only evil all the time. Only evil all the time. The pollution of, of sin had in many ways reached its peak or its climax in that culture. But you also get to see what it does in God's heart. I've always found it so fascinating that God's first response is not anger. What does it say? That God regretted what he had made and that it grieved the very heart of God. It grieved him to the level of his heart. And what it reminds us is that sin, in whatever form and in whatever time, grieves 
the heart of God. It grieved him then and it grieves him now. Like a parent who is watching their child head down the wrong path, uh, sin grieves the heart of God. And it reminds us that he isn't aloof. He doesn't sit there and he think, well, they're going to get what they deserve for their rebellion, for walking down that road. He knows that sin leads to pain and it leads to destruction. And so it grieves the heart of God to see sin run in the culture and in our own hearts. But for God, that grief produces something. And that's what the power of this story really is. It produces really two things in the heart of God. It produces judgment on one hand, and it produces protection and preservation on the other. And if you're really paying attention, uh, in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, you see that cycle in and out through all of these stories. Remember Cain and Abel, for the story of Cain, you saw God's judgment on Cain, but you also saw his protection and his preservation. You see it in Adam and Eve. As God is cursing Adam and Eve because of their sin, he begins to hint at the promise of a rescuer that would come and make right everything that had gone wrong. So you see hand in hand played over and over again the judgment of God on one hand and yet the protection and the preservation of God as well. Judgment and preservation. And we see the same as we come to the Noah story. Clearly, we see here the judgment of God against the the wickedness of man. Now, whenever I read this story, I always think it's pretty ironic uh, that this is such a popular kid's story. Now, don't get me wrong. I get it. Noah builds, in many ways, a floating zoo, right? And that's a fun thing to really think about and imagine what that have been like for 40 days to live in a big boat with zoos and with a zoo everywhere and animals all over the place. But the flip side of the story is, is, is something that's probably surprising that we talk about this so much with our kids because the flip side of this story is the intense and severe judgment of God that comes through a flood. We don't know how many people uh, drowned in this, but we're pretty confident that it was an incredibly significant amount of people that died here. One of the commentators uh, that I read this week uh, talked about how he spent lots of time uh, studying the, the destruction of the flood that comes in Genesis. And he goes home to visit his newborn child and he looks into the crib and what does he see? Uh, the ark design that is everywhere and this floating zoo, thinking that it's so ironic that we use this as a kid's story. But what we know about this story is true. We sing songs with our kids about it as well. The rains, the rains came and the floods rose and many people were killed as a result. I don't know if you were uh, uh, paying attention on Wednesday, but a big storm rolled through um, during dinner time. Uh, and it was a big one. It lasted for uh, uh, close to 30 minutes to 45 minutes. And I did what I love to do in storms, which I learned from my dad as well. I like to go sit out on the porch and watch the storm as it comes around. And there's something about watching a storm and the sheer power of it that often makes me uh, humbled and makes me feel small in the face of God's power. 
right? And uh, my kids like to sometimes come out and do that as well, to, to watch the sheer power of it all. And I couldn't help but think about the sermon this week and uh, just imagine the storm that must have been, the great magnitude and force that must have been as a part of this story. That storm felt long, lasting 30 to 45 minutes. This storm lasted for 40 days and for 40 nights. And so God created the world through the power, the sheer power of his word, but through the sheer power of his word in this story, he marshals the forces of creation to bring judgment upon a culture of sin that had been built. And so God's judgment is on evident display here in this passage, but it isn't just a story about judgment. It is also a story about the protection and the preservation that comes from the hands of God. Again, chapter 6, verse 8 says this, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor in Hebrew also means grace. And it reminds us that the Lord chose Noah and his family to be the objects of his grace and protection. And in many ways, it was God's grace that was the thing that enabled Noah to do what Noah did. It says in Hebrews this, that Noah being warned by God concerning the events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And what Hebrews tells us is the instrument, the operative instrument behind all of it was the faith of Noah. You see, Noah became an object of God's grace, and that grace produced in Noah a sense of faith. And that faith was the thing that brought protection from the wrath of God and the preservation for his young family. Noah and his family are protected and saved from the waters of judgment. And friends, as I've reflected on this passage all throughout the week, I've I've been struck anew at what a picture of the very gospel itself we see here in the story of Noah. Because what we see in the gospel and in the story of Noah is what? That God takes the initiative. That God takes the initiative. He pours grace and favor into a life, and that grace produces saving faith. And that saving faith is the thing that protects us from the wrath of God for sin. All of it from start to finish is a work of God's initiative and a work of God's grace. And so therefore, he gets all the credit for it, start and finish, and to him belongs all the glory for it. See, the grace of God here is on display for all of us to see as we read and reflect upon this story. God's grace was the the instrument of Noah's salvation, but we don't just see Noah's salvation here. We see that God comes to Noah bringing even more for Noah. God comes to Noah making promises and establishing what we see here is the covenant with Noah. And that's really, I think, what shines so brightly in this passage, and that is the promise of God's covenant with Noah. In verse 8, it tells us that God comes to Noah and he says, I want to establish a covenant with you. I want to establish a, a powerful relationship 
with you. But what God says here is that covenant isn't just with Noah, but it's with all of creation. It's with all of this created order that has come out of the ark. And like any covenant, there's two parts. There is the part that God plays and there's the part that humanity plays. And so Noah is given a job. He is given a a similar cultural mandate that Adam and Eve received. Noah is, uh, along with his family, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. He is to build a culture that is to be centered around glorifying God in everything. And so Noah has his end of the deal. He has his part of the relationship. But God also comes making promises about his part As well, he says in verse 11 this I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God promises that he will never again destroy the world through a flood. And not only does God make a promise, but he also gives us a sign of that promise. So we're going to see this as we look at the covenants throughout the Old Testament. God likes to give a sign, a physical reminder of his covenant, of the terms of his relationship. And we see it in verse 13. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you and all of the earth. On Wednesday, when I was watching that storm outside and being struck by the majesty and the power of it all, uh, one of my kids came out, one of my younger kids came out, and they wanted to sit on the porch with dad and watch the storm, much to the chagrin and frustration of my wife. Uh, My kids have always had a very up and down relationship with storms, as most kids do. On one one sense, they're they're attracted by the sheer power of it, uh, but they're also afraid by the fear power of it. And that's probably a pretty good thing. Uh, But I remember having a conversation with one of my kids saying, uh, talking about how much I love these storms. And and, uh, we were talking about how powerful the storm was. And I was able to look at my child and he said, you know what? God is the author of this storm. He is uh, the one who is responsible for this sheer power and might of it all. And uh, in many ways, what we can also think about is this Noah story and how it demonstrates the power of God. But what I was able to say to my child is this, that no matter how powerful that storm gets, God promises that the waters of that storm will never overwhelm us. And he's given us a sign of that promise. Do you know what the sign of that promise is? It's the rainbow that is hung in the sky, a sign of the promises of God, and God always keeps his promises. They are firm and they are true. All of creation is involved in the promises of God through the covenant of Noah. God's common grace here is evident for all with the protection and the preservation of the natural world. But friends, for the follower of Jesus, these promises go even deeper because not only do we get to benefit from the common grace of all that we see in the Noah story, but in the gospel, we also become recipients of the special grace of God. And when we think about that special grace, we always have to come back to the cross of Jesus Christ. Just as the material of Noah's salvation was made of wood, 
In many ways, so is ours in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because what the cross tells us is this, because the the, the cross is another story of judgment and protection that we see all throughout the scriptures. But in this case, the judgment of God comes in another form, in a very different form. The wrath of God is certainly on display in the cross, but it isn't poured out on creation. Instead, it is poured out on God's very son, Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus experienced the flood of God's wrath so that you and I will never have to. He experienced the flood of God's wrath so that you and I, like Noah, could be protected and preserved. You see, the covenant with Noah is just a picture of the greater covenant that you and I get to be a part of if we are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a relationship in which God takes the initiative. It's a relationship in which he pours grace and favor into our lives. And as he pours his grace and favor into our lives, we are saved from the flood of God's wrath. We are preserved and protected by the promises of God. Friends, if you know Jesus, the fullness of God's promises are given to you. You will be, you are protected and preserved by the very power of a God who has committed himself to be faithful to you in every step of the way. No sin of yours can ever get in the way of God's faithfulness to you and no flood in your life will ever be able to overcome you. You are held tightly by the scarred hand of a savior who bled and died for you. As I've thought about this passage all throughout the week, I've been reminded of the words of the old hymn, How Firm of a Foundation. Maybe you've heard this before, but one of the verses says this, when through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be near thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. Friends, God doesn't promise us that there won't be any storms. There are lots of storms that life brings our way. But what God does promise us is that those storms will never overwhelm us because we are carried in the hands of a Savior. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.